Good morning. If you were here last Sunday, then you will remember that uh, our pastor, Ross, lost his uncle in Colorado last week. So Ross is at the funeral this weekend, and he asked if I would step in and, uh, and preach this morning, and it is my great honor to do so. My name is Dan, if we haven't met. What we're going to do is the most important thing anyone can do. We're going to open the Word of God. It is the most important thing anyone can do. Because what we're asking is for something supernatural to happen. We're asking for God to take a sinful man like me and actually speak to a sinful group like you and usher us into heaven itself to encounter God. So would you pray with me as we get started, please? And remember, as we pray, we go before a holy God. Great God of heaven, you, O oh God, who created the world and everything in it, you, O oh God, who are sovereign over all things, you, O oh God, you alone are the living God and we ask you, Lord God, by your mercy, by the blood of your son Jesus, by the power of your spirit, that you would, as Rick said, fall heavy upon us this morning, that you would speak right into our hearts and that we would have an encounter with you. And Lord, if there are souls here who do not know you or have been far from you, we pray, Lord God, because of Jesus, that you would draw them near. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we are going to continue what we've been doing all of 2018, and that is to talk about this concept of dwelling. Dwelling in worship, dwelling in Christ, all of these times that we see in the Bible that we are to dwell. And this morning, we're going to focus on dwelling in awe, A-W-E, <laughs> dwelling in awe and reverence. And I was, uh, uh, if you know Danny Scheller, you may know this story already, but Danny is a member of our church, was just joined the church a few weeks ago, and uh, I interviewed him and his wife, oh, there's Danny right there, I interviewed, and I didn't ask Danny if I could say this before, so, may I, Danny? Great, thank you. Um, I... I asked Danny about his background in church, what he knew of God, and he described something for me that was really quite profound. He grew up Roman Catholic, and he described his interaction with the priests, and that they were somehow other. They were unapproachable. They were holy, even. And to a child, you can see how that might be obvious, the, the, the clothes that are worn, the somber nature of a Roman Catholic service, at least maybe 15 or 20 years ago, um, that, that you might have this sense of awe as a child. But it doesn't change even as we grow up. This morning, I was talking to Jason just before the service, and he was telling me that he was preaching a message in, an, in a uh, in, in, before this organization, and it was a bunch of men wearing suits and ties. And Jason showed up looking like Jason, which meant Hawaiian shirt, shorts, and sandals. And that there was this tangible, this palpable sense from the audience, according to Jason, that he was not going to be received well right away, right? It was just awkward. Can you, you know what I'm talking about? 
And then you come to this church, and I almost wore sandals today, but I didn't want to cross any lines or anything that you all might have. I bring that up because we can create some crazy ideas in our own heads of what holiness is, of what holiness looks like. I wonder, who here thinks about holiness? Not a lot. Ponders holiness. And when you ponder it, do you ponder it about yourself, your own personal holiness? Or when you pray, do you, do you just take a moment to say that I'm speaking to God? Like, do you, have you read in the Bible the imagery that we have of God? I mean, no man can look upon God and live. That's what the scriptures say. But the imagery that we have of God is so profound if you know the, the, the prophet Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, he had a vision and he had this incredible encounter with Almighty God in his vision. And some of you will know this. He fell down as if dead. And he said what? Woe is me. We might use different language some, you know, almost 3,000 years later. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Why does he say that? Because in an encounter with, with the actual God who is holy, we are reminded that we're not. That God is holy and we are not. So this morning what I want to do, and if you have your Bibles, open them, and forgive me, I'm not exactly sure where we're going to go this morning, but we might turn a lot of pages, so please stick with me. But we're going to start in Exodus chapter 29. And I want to give you the context as you're turning there, Exodus 29. So God's people, the Israelites, have been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And it's worse than just being in slavery. Their work conditions were absolutely deplorable and impossible. And then beyond that, the Egyptians had this tremendous fear of the Israelites. Even though the Israelites were, slave, were, were slaves, the Egyptians had this tremendous fear of the Israelites. Do you know why? Because there were so doggone many of them. And the response from the leader of Egypt, the Pharaoh, was to instruct that any baby boy born of an Israelite woman should be killed, should be thrown into the Nile River. Shocking, isn't it? The people cried out and they prayed. And if you know Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, one of my favorite verses of the Bible, I encourage you to go look at it for yourself, that the people prayed and God heard their prayer. God saw their suffering and God came down. And he raised up a man, a man named Moses, to deliver the Israelites, deliver this, this nation of slaves out of Egypt, out of slavery, and to a land far away that he had promised to them. And they were, it wasn't like they just got to walk out. They're slaves, they're chattel, they're owned by someone else. They don't just get up and leave. And God had to do some amazing things, send 10 different plagues on the people of Egypt. And at the 10th plague, Pharaoh said, out, go. And they leave. And you may recall they will end up, the Egyptian army will chase them as the Israelite nation is leaving. But God will do another great miracle as he will part the Red Sea and the Israelites will go through the Red Sea. And the Egyptian army, as they attempt to follow the Israelites, you know what happens. 
God releases the power of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is destroyed. Well, they get out into the, into the land past the Red Sea. They're going to be on their way to the promised land. And they didn't have food. So God gave them food from heaven. You guys, some of you know this expression. You probably don't even know where it came from. Manna from heaven. Bread from heaven. This is how God fed his people out in the wilderness. They, they didn't have water. God made water miraculously come out of a rock. God was providing for them immeasurably. And then God gave them something else. He gave them his law. His law. They were saying like, no, food, water, we get, but his law, yes, he gave them his law. Do you know why God gave them his law? In Exodus chapter 19, this is what it said, is that he wanted to make a people for his own treasured possession. It's his treasured possession. And he wanted to make them holy, like he is. And so he said to his people, you must obey these laws. But he knew that obedience, perfect obedience, would be impossible. And so he established, do you know what he established because of that? Anybody know? A priesthood. A priesthood. Someone to mediate between God and man. Someone to represent man before God and to seek forgiveness of sin, of a violation of God's law. Okay, so we, we got a little problem in that, right? Because if you want me, since I'm standing up here and I have the microphone, if you want me to be a mediator between you and God, you've got a big problem. Because I need a mediator between me and God, because I'm a sinner, right? I have not perfectly followed God's law. And so God, knowing this about man, knowing this about us, knowing this about you, he sets up this priesthood, and the first thing he's going to say is that the priests have to be consecrated. There's an Old Testament word you don't hear very often, consecrated. Do you know what that means? Made holy. Declared or made holy. And what we're going to do quickly is we're going to start to run through Exodus 29, and we're not going to do the whole thing if you're there, but we're going to start to run through Exodus 29, and you can see the measures that God would have man take to be consecrated so that he might be a mediator with God. Now, he's going to be talking, I mentioned Moses, he's going to be talking about Moses' brother, Aaron, the priests in the Old Testament are descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. And that'll be more clear as we start to read, okay? Exodus chapter 29, verse 1. This is God talking to Moses. Now, this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Okay, remember what I said? This is to consecrate them, to make them holy, so that they can serve as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And it goes on to talk a little bit about this, but we're going to jump to verse 4. Get ready. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's the place where they're going to meet with God. Bring them to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Okay, so there's this external washing that's got to take place. Verse 5, then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod, which is like a, it's a, a sleeveless outer garment, 
and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. Okay, so he's got clothes that he has to wear too. By the way, this is sounding a little bit familiar, right? When I started, what we dress whether we showered before we came to church is super important to some people, right? Maybe, maybe perhaps too important. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Verse 7, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring Aaron's sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus shall you ordain Aaron and his sons. Seems pretty simple. Shower, oil, clothes, hat, maybe a little bit more. But now we're going to get into the difficult part. Verse 10, then you shall bring the bull. Remember, a bull and two rams. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. And by the way, this is going to be done in front of the entire nation of Israel. So picture this. And as you picture it, you might start to think, what must that have looked like? What must that have been like? Especially if my children were with me. And he has his hands on the head. And, and by the way, the, the, the hands, the, the, what that, does anybody know what that signifies? putting the hands on the head of the animal, it becomes symbolic of a transfer of the sin of man onto the beast itself. And that will become evident right now because this is what's going to happen. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar and you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Hold on, we're not, yet, we're not done yet. There's another one. Verse 15, Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. Remember, the first one was a sin offering. This one says it is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And now just one more paragraph and one more beast. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. All right, our modern sensibilities, we probably hear that in recoil a little bit. It's disgusting. It's grotesque even. I, I, I knew a lady when I was years ago and she was telling me about her New Year's resolution that she wanted to read through the whole Bible. 
And uh, so she read uh, Genesis. She made it through Exodus. Well, by the time she got to Leviticus, which goes into some more somewhat excruciating detail on what I just read to you, she said, I just had to stop. It was so gross. All the blood. And today, I think we, in our modern, sophisticated minds, we look upon that and we go, how barbaric. How savage. Those ancient people. But what was God doing? God had a very specific thing that he was trying to teach. Do you know what it was? It's so simple. He's holy. We're not. That we cannot approach him, man cannot approach God presumptuously on our terms. We have to approach God on his terms. And he defines what those terms are. That our sin is so grave that the punishment must be equally grave. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? That the sin is so offensive to God that our lack of holiness is so bad that the only way we can comprehend, that we can begin to apprehend the great chasm between us and God is that we have to see that something has to be slaughtered, that blood must be shed to see that we, get, we don't get to approach God in the way that we choose. We have to do it in the way he chooses. And, and I want to I use a little analogy here to, to, to help this make sense. If I cheat on my wife, Nancy, who's the wrongdoer? Wow, that Dan is the wrongdoer, right? And my wife is not. If Dan is the wrongdoer, do I get to dictate the terms of reconciliation to my wife? No. No. I mean, absolutely not. In fact, even in our modern sensibilities, we would say, that is totally unjust. That is outrageous. That typical man thing to do. Because it is outrageous. Because I'm the offender. I am the wrongdoer. I realize the analogy breaks down, but do you see how that is a picture in a sense of we have wronged God. We don't get to dictate the terms by which we get peace with him. Does that make sense? We don't get to dictate the terms by which we would be acceptable to God. At this point, some of you, I think, are probably going, when's he going to get to the New Testament stuff? It's not nearly so bloody there. Is it? Do we still have to surrender to God and acknowledge He is holy and we are not? Absolutely. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, I wish we could just read the whole book out loud to you. It'd be much better than what I'm telling you right now. I want to read from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. God still gets to dictate the terms by which we approach him. And this is what he said. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you know what that reference to a consuming fire actually is? Remember I said once it got to Leviticus, it got even more bloody? Well, let me tell you what happened. When you get to Leviticus chapter 9... 
All that I read to you from Exodus chapter 29 is, is really just the instructions. When you get to in Leviticus chapter 9, that's the third book of the Bible, that's when Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons are to execute on those instructions. And so they gather all those things up. They gather the garments. They gather the tent. They gather the water. They have a basin for the water. And they bring the animals. And they put their hands on the animals. And the animals are slaughtered. And God said he would do this, that when his people would do this, that they would know that he would dwell with them when they came to him in the way that he instructed. And listen to what it says in Leviticus chapter 9, verse uh, 22. After Aaron goes through all of this with the blood and everything else, this is what it said. Then, chapter 9, verse 22 of Leviticus. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. Now remember, God said, when you do that, you will know that I will dwell with you. And listen to this. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came down. Uh, came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. There is a right way to approach God. Sadly, for those of you who know the rest of the story, there's a wrong way also. Because all you need to do is look at the very next sentence, chapter 10, verse 1 of Leviticus. Remember I said that Aaron's sons would be the, in the priestly line, and he had two boys named Nadab and Abihu. Chapter 10, verse 1, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, which is a, a pan to hold burning coals, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire, or some of your translations will say strange fire, before the Lord which he had not commanded them. God made it very clear what the people were to do. And Nadab and Abihu did their own thing. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said among... This is Aaron. His two sons have just been killed by God. This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified and before the pe all the people, I will be glorified. God will not share his glory with anyone. And so when we get to the New Testament, does it surprise you that God still dictates the terms on which we much, must approach him? That we still must be holy. That we must approach him with reverence and awe. It shouldn't surprise us. Do, do you realize why? If God is so holy that in the Old Testament, before the coming of Jesus, that people had to go through this incredibly bloody ritual over and over again to have this visual depiction regularly that God is holy and that we are not, how much more should we revere Jesus for taking that place for us? Do you see what I'm saying? How much greater in our eyes should the Son of God be that he came from heaven and took our place to die to take all that slaughter, that in a sense we put our hands on him and he removes our sins once for all? 
all time, and all who believe. How much greater in our eyes should Christ be? But now let me ask, is he? Do we revere him? Do we revere him in that amazing way? I was talking to some folks the other day about this, and I, I asked, how do we view Jesus? And the answers are fascinating. And I would just ask you, how do you view Jesus? Today, he's viewed as effeminate, a hippie. I remember seeing this depiction of him when I was in high school of the guy with dreadlocks just chilling on the rock. Or what was made famous in the book, The Shack, the hippie Jesus with denim jeans with rips in them. When I was uh, in another church, somebody got up to say after the band had, the worship team had led people into the presence of God, and she got up and she said, that's how I picture Jesus, jamming on a guitar. And I was like, what Bible are you reading? Now, I'm not saying Jesus doesn't love music. I think he loves music. But if you read the scriptures, Jesus is hard. Jesus is hard. You read the Gospels, you want to talk about confrontational? Do you remember what he does when he gets to the temple and the moneylenders are there? Makes a, 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 a whip, a cord, and whips it around and drives people out? Or how about this? This is one of the most powerful, moving, very small stories of the Bible for me. It's the Sabbath, and Jesus wants to heal a man with a withered hand. And he does it in the synagogue. And he calls the man with the withered hand up, right up here, so everybody can see him. And all of the religious people are out there, and it says they're very mad. They cannot believe they're going to test Jesus. Is he really going to heal somebody on the Sabbath? And it says this. It says that Jesus asked them, is it right to give life or is it right to heal on the Sabbath? And then it says he stopped and was angry with them and looked at them. I get chills thinking about that. This is the Son of God, and He is getting right in their faces. And He says, so that you may know that the Son of God has power and is Lord of the Sabbath. And right in front of everyone, He heals the man with the withered hand, which was a great offense. For those who read their Old Testament scriptures, that make it absolutely clear, you cannot work on the, on the Sabbath. You were to rest. Jesus was not weak. Amen. Jesus was the epitome of strength, ultimate strength under control. We get a picture of this when we get to Revelation chapter 1. If you, if you know uh, the book of Revelation, sorry, I'm looking at the clock. If you know the book of Revelation, the apostle John has a vision of heaven. He has a vision of Jesus in heaven. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, he says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And is it any wonder, just like the experience Isaiah had had in the Old Testament, the experience that John has in the New, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Jesus today, in his own words from the gospel, says he is seated at the right hand of God. And do you know what he's doing? What he's going to do? He's going to come back. He's going to come back. Did you know that? Hallelujah! He is going to come back. But not jamming a guitar. Second Thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed, and here it comes, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, and we just read about his eyes of flaming fire, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Is that how you see Jesus? So let me ask, back to this passage from Hebrews, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Is your worship acceptable? It's mine. Is our worship acceptable to Almighty God? Do we revere Him? Are we in awe of Him? When we come here, where His people are called to come together to worship Him, do we expect to encounter Him? Do we humble ourselves before Him? Do we have this sense that we must confess because of what we've done that has offended Him? I think the answer is no. At least for me. I can't speak for y'all. But each of us has to answer this question. Are we offering acceptable worship? And here's what I think. This is as I, as I sort of investigate my own life is that I'm not contemplating the holiness of God. And because I'm not thinking about the holiness of God, I'm not thinking about my own sin. In fact, I'm making very light of God. Alistair Begg is one of my favorite preachers. He's a Scottish guy, but preaches in Cleveland. And he said something a couple weeks ago during a sermon I was listening to, and it rattled me. And he says this, the kingdom of God demands your first priority. The kingdom of God demands your first priority. And you know what I thought? I had to reluctantly agree with him. 
And I was reluctant because I didn't want it to be true. Because I'm busy building my own kingdom. And I'm trying to get God to bless it. Do we see God, do we see the Lord Jesus in the way he's actually depicted in his word, in the way he actually is, or do we see him as our cosmic vending machine? One that we don't even think works very well. See, we take God lightly. And let me tell you another thing. Gosh, I feel horrible about being the one who has to share this. We take sin lightly. We don't even know what sin is anymore. We don't even believe, I'm not sure people in the church believe their sin anymore. Even the ones that like are unequivocal, like, well, let's go back to Leviticus and talk about the things that God describes as an abomination. That's not an abomination anymore. And we have disagreement. We cannot even agree that there is sin or if there is what it is. And so I, I just sat down yesterday and I was thinking through Forget the big ones. Forget the ones that were like, we all know, the sinner, right? Forget those ones for just a second. Let's talk about the ones I'll call second order of magnitude. And tell me if you are struck by this as much as I am. Be content. Who's there? Who's content? Come on. Okay, two people. Awesome. You guys aren't doing so well. (laughs) Give thanks. Dot, dot, dot. In all things. Who's got that one down? Go, go, go. Praise the Lord. You know, when you read through the Psalms, when I read through the Psalms over and over again, the Psalms will begin, especially the last handful of them, begin, praise the Lord. And some of them will say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And I would just read that. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and then I'd read the next verse. And then it occurred to me once, hey, that's a command. I'm supposed to praise the Lord. God only had to tell me that 4,521 times until I finally got it. But, But I'll tell you what. You get to a prayer meeting and you say, hey, for the next 15 minutes, let's just praise God. Boy, it gets awfully quiet. How about this one? It says this twice. No irreverent babble. Some of you, some of us, need to start talking 50% less. Maybe more. How about this one? Do not grumble. All of us probably need to talk about 50% less than we do right now. Do not lust. Greed turns out is a sin. (laughs) Who knew? I thought I was just trying to maximize my earnings per share. Pride. Pride. Which is one that hits me particularly hard. For those of you who are political beasts, I actually got into a debate with somebody who told me this is not in the scriptures, so I thought I would quote it. Be subject to the governing authorities. 
That's from Romans chapter 13. There's a whole section on it. Easy to do today? Okay, that's just subjection. Peter ups the ante. Do you know what Peter says? Honor the emperor. See, these are sins. Do we care? Does any of us care? That God Almighty would send His Son to die for us so that we wouldn't sin? And we don't even acknowledge that we're doing it. Here are some more that just, just crush me. Do not cause a brother to stumble. Ladies, do you know that what you wear matters? Because ladies aren't the only ones looking at you. Same does go for men. But <laughs> same does go for men. Let us not, in fact, thank you, Diana, because you just segue to the next one. Let us not pass judgment on one another. I confess, Lord, the sin that I just made. This one I was undone when I read this some years ago, when Jesus said these incredibly simple words Love your enemies. In case we're concerned about whether there's sin or we're still persuaded that there isn't, I just want to read, this is from Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Remember, I said we jump a little bit and I apologize for that. Whatever does not, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's what the Word of God says. Let me ask you, does anyone else feel like Nadab and Abihu who have been offering unauthorized fire and we're all going <laughs> like that? Like God is calling us to be holy. The Apostle Peter says that he quotes the Old Testament and says, God is holy, you be holy. In all your conduct, he says. I don't know about you. This is hard. This is heavy stuff. Like we're talking about a holy God and I'm coming up here and I don't want to talk about a, a holy God right now. I want to talk about fun and smile and laughter and all kinds of other stuff. But the reality is that if we want access to this holy God, we've got to know we're not entitled to it. And in fact, the exact opposite is most of us have been rejecting him. But that is the bad news. Here is the good news, is that there is hope. Is God holy? Yes. Absolutely. Are we sinners? Yes. yes, we are. And so how do we reconcile this thing? Do we need to go get a, a bull and a couple of rams? Do we need to go make sure we have the turban and the garments? Do I need to come up here with a suit and a tie? No, no. We need to know that God is more than just holy. He's also merciful. Amen. And he loves you. He loves you. Let me just, he loves you. You know how you love that child of yours? He loves you more. 
He loves you more. That thing that you love the most, he loves you infinity times more than that. He loves you. Why else? Ask yourself, why else would he take his son out of heaven and have him come and dwell with us? To be mocked, scorned, beaten, flogged, crucified. He, he loves you. Do you get that? He loves you. Because with, and without him, we have no hope. But with him, we have all the hope in the world, and it makes all the difference in the world. That all we have to do, it's not that, that we put on a turban. It's not that we put on an ephod. It is that we put on Jesus, and we say to him, great God of heaven, you are holy. I am not, and I need a savior. I need your son. He is the only hope that we have of ever having acceptable worship before God. That's it. That's it. It's not a turban. It's a savior. And we come before him, and not only does he make us holy sort of relationally, because that's, remember the word consecrate? Remember that word I said before? It's, it makes someone holy. It declares someone holy. Jesus does not only consecrate us in the sense that he declares us holy, he gives us his spirit who will work in us to actually empower us to do God's word, to do God's will, to be, as Peter said, holy in all our conduct. Will we fail? Absolutely. Does Jesus need to be crucified again? No. Once for all for the remission of sins. We just go back before him and we say, Lord, I agree. I sinned. Thank you for loving me and I ask you to forgive me that is love. If you don't know Jesus, I'm sorry. You're stuck in your sin. There's no other way. You can put on a turban if you want. It's not going to help. Even with the holy crown on it, it's not going to help. But if you place your faith and trust in Christ, he makes you holy. Amen. And if it has been a long time since you have thought about these things, since you have thought about the holiness of God, I invite you, come, get to know this Jesus all over again. Go back to the cross, see him there, the crucified Savior, the Savior from heaven, and worship, and worship. And we're running so low on time that I'm going to, I'm just going to read something from Revelation chapter 5. You want, to know what, you want to know what acceptable worship looks like? This is it. Because Jesus, as I said, is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And there, there are elders around the throne. There are angels around the throne. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And everyone begins to sing. This is Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. They're singing to Jesus. If you read Revelation chapter 4, they're reading to God the Father. And all of a sudden, the worship in heaven starts to pan out. It's not just God the Father. It is God the Father and God the Son. Listen to this. It's amazing. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seal for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked, this is the Apostle John, who's still having this amazing vision of heaven. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, that's a reference to Jesus, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. I'm going to invite the band up, and uh, we are going to have an opportunity to right now join with all the saints in heaven and to offer that kind of worship to Almighty God.